Hello and welcome to episode 47 of A Flat Pack History of Sweden, your English speaking tour guide through Swedish history. I'm Elsa. And I'm Chris. Continuing with the tour analogy that also has just started, our next stop today is Sweden in the early 14th century, where we will see sibling rivalry on a whole new level. In our last episode, we covered the early years of King Berger's reign, from when his dad Magnus died in 1290 until the start of 1300. But since Berger was only a child and a teenager for most of this time, it was in reality the mask, Torgil Knutsson and the rest of the Regency Council that did most of the work at that point. And that mainly meant fighting in modern-day Finland and Russia, expanding Sweden's eastern border and fighting with that good old favourite enemy, Novgorod. Now, in this episode, we'll see what happens when King Björjör actually comes to power in practice, not just as some sort of token child king. But before we delve into that, as always, it is time to cover our Swedish phrase of the week. Uh, the Swedish phrases are now also available on our website uh, if you want to have a look back at which ones we've covered so far and maybe see them in writing if you find that helpful. And as always, we appreciate suggestions for new phrases to cover. But this week, it's a nice and short one. Het bakom öronen. Which means hot behind the ears. Um, and is this somewhat similar to the English phrase when we talk about your ears being on fire when you lie? Is this something similar? Well, not really. The phrase is often used along with the verb få, meaning to get. So få det het bakom öronen. To get it hot behind your ears. It quite simply means to end up in trouble or to find yourself in a difficult, precarious or vulnerable situation. You could say, for example, now that Michael is team leader, he will get it hot behind the ears because there are a lot of issues in that team and some very difficult people to work with. So he's landed in trouble uh, is the meaning. Sure. Well, that makes a lot of sense. And maybe if you're in trouble and you're upset and frustrated, your ears get hot. Um, maybe that's where it comes from. Yeah, I don't know. I've my uh, my medical knowledge or anatomical knowledge of uh, when different body parts get hot is is not sufficient to say anything on the matter. Well, we'll just have to imagine that someone who is getting hot behind his ears is our protagonist in today's episode, King Birger. <laughs> yeah. We've already introduced him in our last episode, where we saw how he got married to the Danish princess Merta and did some early kinging with the approval of the Upland law, for example. But as we just mentioned, most of the actual rule and fighting was managed and done by the Royal Council and Mask Torgel Knutsson in particular. Now we've turned into a new century, we get to 1302, and Birger is ready to become king for real. He's now 22 years old, and it's time for a coronation. Oh yay! Coronations! Always good fun. Birger is crowned in Söderköping, a town about 140 kilometers southwest of Stockholm, so just under 100 miles, and this is in the county of Östergötland. 
Birger is the first, and as far as we've been able to find out, only king that is crowned in Sudderschöping. So that's another thing that Birger is alone in doing, the first being the only king with the name Birger, and now the only king crowned in Sudderschöping. So he's Birger the first in two ways. Yeah, good for him to stand out from the crowd, I suppose. It's interesting that he wasn't crowned in Stockholm or Uppsala, though. Maybe they picked Söderköping because that's where his mother, Helvig, was crowned queen some 20 years earlier. So I guess uh, she was. that was still a coronation, but just not the coronation of the monarch. Yeah, you're right. Maybe Söderköping had some leftover coronation merch that they could use uh, for, for this new coronation. Yeah, lots of, uh, sort of t-shirts and things saying, I'm here to chew bubblegum and get crowned and I'm all out of bubblegum or something like that. <laughs> like... That's a rubbish t-shirt. It was a great t-shirt. I bet the king, current king, has one. But anyway, uh, Bilya is now officially an adult, and he's now officially the king. He's crowned, he's married, and he's good to go as far as being the monarch of Sweden is in both formality and practice. But what about Mask Tjörgur Knutsson, the man who had led the council and more or less been Sweden's de facto ruler for the last 12 years? If you've listened to the last 46 episodes, you're probably expecting Torgil Knutsson to raise an army, kill Birger, and try and take the throne for himself. So what does he get up to? Well, whilst we've not been able to find out too much about their relationship, nothing is clearly stated in any of the sources we've had access to. Um, If you read between the lines, the two seem to have had an amiable relationship, and Torgil was firmly on Bielio's side during his reign, so uh, no racing an army and trying to take over yourself there. Instead, Torgil leaves his position as de facto ruler of Sweden, but stays influential in the country, uh, sort of as Birgel's right-hand man. In fact, in the same year as the coronation, Birgel's younger brother Valdemar marries Torgil Knutsson's daughter. So it's all a bit happy family for now. Yeah, so um, it shows you that Torgil Knutsson is still very much involved. Yeah, definitely. Now, as we saw in our previous episode, the 1290s had been relatively calm in Sweden, and therefore much of the political attention had instead been focused eastwards, with various military campaigns against Novgorod. This was with the intention of expanding Swedish territory eastwards in modern-day Finland and into Russia. One domestic consequence of this fighting was that because of the unstable situation in this part of the Baltic Sea, German traders, who were dependent on crossing the Baltic Sea to do their business, had to, in a sense, come down on one side or the other in order to make sure they had safe passage on their journey. We've seen how Swedish rulers for a while now, going all the way back to Birger really, have made it a key priority to stay friends with the German traders. Perhaps because of these already well-established ties to the Swedish rulers, the Germans sought safe passage from the Swedish council and not from other rulers in the area during this period. And that helped strengthen that German-Swedish trade relation that was so important for Sweden. In fact, in his position as right-hand man to the king, Torgil Knutsson helped to renew a trade agreement with Lübeck in 1303, and mentioned in the terms there were that traders should not trade with Novgorod as long as they were trading with Sweden. So they're definitely making the Germans choose sides. So if the Regency period has been overall rather calm, and even you could argue positive, what with all that expansion of the eastern border... 
Will the smooth sailing continue into the 1300s and continue now that Belial has taken over? Well, allow me to say no. <laughs> yeah, you're right. We're about to see history repeating itself in history. Remember how Belial's dad, King Magnus, along with his brother Eric, fought with their brother, King Valdemar, after their dad, Belial Jarl, died? Well, King Belial and his brothers are about to take a page out of their dad's playbook and elevate it. In his book, Regenta i Sverige, Regents in Sweden, historian Bengt Lillegren describes it as a brotherly feud of Shakespearean proportions. And I think that Lillegren is spot on here, what with what we're going to see in the rest of this episode and in the next episode. It really does seem something like the great bard himself could have written. I agree. This is one of those occasions where reality outdoes fiction. Obviously, we're looking at this 700 years after the events happened, and it is tempting to sensationalize things for the benefit of making it entertaining. But even if we take that into account, what will happen over the course of the next two decades is pretty out of the ordinary probably worth it just taking a few moments to remind ourselves of the main players in Sweden before this all kicks off. So let's rewind a bit and see. King Magnus had three sons. The oldest is our king, Birja, who was named heir as a small child whilst his father was still alive. Then there are his younger brothers, Erik and Valdemar. It's worth keeping in mind that these three brothers are all quite close in age. Even though we don't know the exact date of either of their births, they're believed to have been born within the space of a five-year period between 1280 and 1285. King Magnus had envisioned a similar setup for his sons as the one his dad, Bioyal Jarl, had for him and his brothers, being that the oldest, which in this case was Bioyal, was to be king, and the younger ones were to be dukes and have certain areas that they were more in charge of, but also in general be part of the court and the day-to-day -day ruling of the country. I mean, this really does raise the question, did Magnus remember anything about his own dealings with his brothers? Because it seems a bit stupid that he says, I'm going to do the exact same thing with my sons, even though that me and my brothers completely messed it up when our dad created this system. You'd think he'd want to try something a little bit different this time. Yeah, I see what you mean. I thought the same when I was reading about this. Maybe King Magnus just thought that they would be second time lucky or something. I don't know. For sure. And by 1302, the three brothers are now young men, and the council sticks to the plan that Magnus had laid out before he died. Birger is crowned king in the coronation. At the same time, Eric is made duke. Some sources say he was made Duke of Sermonland, a wealthy farmland region just south of Stockholm, and some sources say he was Duke of Orsfeyerland. At the same time, Valdemar is made Duke of Finland. The same time as becoming Duke of Finland, as we mentioned, Valdemar marries Christina, daughter of Torgo Knutsson. So Valdemar is having a great time getting doubly involved with the power structures of the kingdom, being made a Duke and being married to the daughter of the right-hand man to the king. 
So that is pretty much exactly what it was like for the previous generation, when Valdemar was first crowned king, with Magnus then initially being duke, and their youngest brother Bingt being duke of Finland. I mean, we even see some of the names recurring in the next generation. Yes, and there was also another Eric as well. So uh, there's everyone has the same names as we've seen for the last 300 years or so. <laughs> um, because the Biobu family in particular like recycling names and titles and power structures. Uh, so we'll see how this works out. But yes, in 1302, the same year that all these dukedoms are handed out and the coronation takes place, it's time to officially settle the inheritance that was left for them by their father Magnus and also assign them these new roles. We assume that they waited until now because the three brothers were just kids when their father died, so handing out dukedoms and coronations would seem a bit premature, perhaps. It's probably just easier and more relevant to wait until they'd all grown up a bit. Yeah, and like Chris said, apart from being assigned these new roles as king and dukes, they are also given their different parts of their father's inheritance. So that's land, various estates, and so on. Yeah, lots of earthly goods rather than just titles. And trouble starts pretty much as soon as this inheritance settlement is concluded. They just start looking around and saying, oh, you've got some of this and you've got some of that. And uh, whilst we don't have any records preserved of what the brothers actually said or felt, there aren't any diaries or letters around, it does seem, at least to an outsider, that it really did just boil down to jealousy in many ways. One was jealous of the power, the status, the wealth, the title that the other got, and they simply were unable to get along and work together without being jealous at this slightly larger estate or title that their brother has. Because even though Eric and Valdemar were given seats on the ruling council and their own dukedoms, indicating that they were meant to play active roles in the ruling of Sweden, they weren't content to just play their part as had been given to them and set out to get more power pretty much right away. We don't know too much about Valdemar, the youngest one of the three brothers. Uh, he seems to have joined forces with his brother Erik right away and would go wherever Erik went and support him in all matters. Essentially, it was Birjor versus Erik and Valdemar. Uh, the marriage between Valdemar and Torgil Knudsson's daughter didn't seem to help keep him loyal at all. No, and of the two rebelling brothers, Eric seems to have been the more forceful one. He's described as shrewd and unscrupulous. Eric was simply not content to simply be a duke, which was, after all, not as powerful as the king, especially when there was already an older and more powerful mask in the picture as well. Because let's remember, whilst Torgil Knutsson had stepped down from being the leader of the Regency Council and handed over official and de facto power to King Birja, now he had turned into an adult, and especially after he was crowned, Torgil Knutsson was still there, and it's fair to assume, considering that he's older and more experienced, that he has quite a lot of say in how the country is being run. And to his credit, Torgil remains fiercely loyal to King Birja. So Erik wasn't just going to play second fiddle to his brother the king. With an older and experienced mask in the picture, he was more like third or fourth fiddle. And that seems to have been way too far down the chain of command for young Erik's liking. 
As a sign of this, in 1302, Eric is betrothed, and he's betrothed to none other than the Norwegian princess Ingeborg, the daughter of King Håkon Magnusson, Håkon V in English sources. Being both the son of a king and soon son-in-law of a king seemed to fuel Eric's ambitions even more and made him more confident in his belief that he, along with Valdemar, were much more fit to rule Sweden than Birja. One thing we're not sure about, though, is how much Eric planned to keep Valdemar in the picture after their hoped-for victory. If he wanted power as much as this, it doesn't seem logical to think that Valdemar would have been given much power by Eric or even been allowed to remain in the picture, but they seem to be teaming up for now. Over the course of the following years, as focus shifts more and more to internal matters in Sweden and away from campaigns in eastern Finland and into Novgorod, the relationship between the three brothers deteriorates, even though we haven't seen any open hostilities yet. And that's not the only thing that deteriorates. Uh, So does the relationship between the church and the nobility. This tension has been brewing for years. Uh, In fact, it goes all the way back to King Magnus' reign. Magnus was a big fan of the church, both privately and politically, and so gave them loads of privileges. The Regency Council under Mask Togil reversed this and instead worked to make the nobility more powerful. And so it's been back and forth between the church and the nobility, these two power players in medieval Swedish society, one always wanting to be stronger than the other. Right now, uh, the church is particularly angry because the crown is making them fork out for some new taxes. Perhaps sensing the mood of the time and wanting to make sure that power is secured with him and his immediate family, Birger wants to officially secure the order of succession and make his son Magnus heir to the throne in a formal ceremony. We know that Magnus was born in September 1300, so he's absolutely only a toddler at this point. Still, Birger thinks this is better than nothing, especially considering he knows his brothers are out for some sort of more sense of power. You know that thing when you, like, call shotgun? Like, you reserve a seat? Bilyo's running up with his two-year-old son and just going, you sit here and reserve the throne for my side of the family. That's definitely what he's doing. And eventually, Bilyo succeeds in making his son the heir, but only after he actually had to make concessions to his brother and mask Torgil in order to make the council agree to this sort of official order of succession. In the end, this has the opposite effect of the one Bilyo intended. Instead of securing power, it makes him seem weak he's having to ask for favors and call in loads of sort of old political debts to get them to agree to this it is very difficult to know what actually happened now and what led up to the violent events we'll see later mainly because there are very few contemporary sources the main contemporary source is the eric chronicle which is very biased in favor of eric It's named after him, so it's sort of in the title that it's going to be biased to Eric. So if you're thinking we're giving you very broad brush strokes of what led up to certain events, well, that is sadly because broad brush strokes is largely what we have to go on. Over time, Eric positions himself as the main figure of the opposition, 
Not so much in opposition against King Birger, at least right now, but more in opposition to Mask Torgil. Eirek seems to have set his sights on the older statesman who had both the power that comes with the experience of its position and enjoyed a good relationship with the king. And on top of that, he was a very skilled military commander. The year 1304 firmly marks the end of the relatively peaceful times that Sweden had enjoyed since the second half of the reign of King Magnus. Erik and Valdemar enjoy plenty of support from Erik's father-in-law, King Håkon of Norway, who, among other things, gives Erik the impressive fortress Kungahella in the county of Bohuslän, so uh, in the west of Sweden, very close to what was then the Norwegian border, and I suppose quite close to what is still the border with Norway. From here, the brothers could build up a strong local power base in the west of Sweden to back their fight against King Björjör and Mask Torgil. 1304 starts with Erik and Valdemar going to see Mask Torgil. We don't know exactly what went on in that meeting or, or where it was held, but the masks seem to have come out on top. In the end, Erik and Valdemar are forced to swear humiliating oaths of allegiance to the king. This angers the two dukes, who soon after began plotting a proper revolt, and they head to Norway to gain support for turning talk into action. Indeed. So uh, the oath of loyalty didn't really work. It just annoyed them even further. And before we continue, I also just quickly mentioned Eric having this fortress at Kungahella. And I just want to say that Birja, having realised that his brothers were undermining him in Western Sweden, quickly built his own fortress on Gulbar's head to uh, prevent his brothers taking control over the important Jörte Elf River. Gulbar's head, by the way, is pretty much bang on where the city centre of Gothenburg is today. I know we often say that uh, Sweden had no west coast at this time. That's not entirely true at every single point. The west coast of uh, modern-day Sweden was either Danish or Norwegian territory in the Middle Ages, but at various points the Swedes did seem to manage to sneak access into some sort of land along the uh, eastern shore of the Jörtel River. It fluctuates fairly frequently. From this river you can get out to the sea in the west coast. And this was the case in uh, 1304 when uh, Birger decides to build his fortress here. And he builds it really quickly, so maybe it was a flat pack fortress. Uh. <laughs> maybe. But it's good that you mentioned that geography point because much of what now happens takes place in western Sweden. It is now that the dispute turns violent, at least with proxies at first. Local noblemen who are loyal to Erik and Valdemar burn down Lödöse on the banks of the Jötaelv river. This is Sweden's only westward-facing port at the time, so burning it down is a heavy blow to the state and its coffers. It is also a symbol of royal power with a lot of authority based there and palaces for the king there. From their stronghold in Västergötland, Erik and Valdemar then start their part of the rebellion. With their forces, they attack the county of Dalsland, where they destroy several bridges. Ooh, dramatic. Burning bridges with their brother and on the map. <laughs> 
Mats Kjettilsson, the knight who we mentioned in our previous episode when he was off leading Swedish troops in the fight against Novgorod, is now back on home ground and seems to have switched sides. He's now leading a force loyal to Erik and Valdemar in successful battles against Birjol's men. Uh, this would have been a big blow to Birger, as apart from Torgil Knutsson, Mats Kjetilsson seemed to have been the most experienced warrior or sort of general in Sweden at the time. To have someone like him defect to the rebels must have been a big, big problem for Birger. Yeah, because he presumably didn't just do this by himself. He would have had loyal lieutenants and, uh, you know, forces under his control that he would have been able to take over with him. And meanwhile, whilst Erik and Valdemar are victorious in the West, they seem to have left their flank vulnerable. So when Torgil Knutsson leads a royal counterattack on areas in Sverland, including places in Erik's own dukedom, he is able to be successful relatively easily. Mask Torgil takes several estates and fortresses belonging to the brothers, including Eric's home fortress of Nyskjöpingshus. King Birger himself, after his forces have initially been beaten by his brothers, gets himself together and asks for help from his brother-in-law, King Eric Menved in Denmark. And remember, he's married to the king's sister, and the three brothers' sister is also married to King Eric. So he's effectively countering his brother, Duke Eric's marriage to Norway with his marriage to Denmark. This Danish-Swedish alliance gathers a large army, which some sources say reached 10,000 men, and start to besiege several of the rebel strongholds. This turns the tide in favour of Birger, and his brothers realise that if something doesn't change soon, they're going to lose, despite having competent generals like Mats Schettelsen on their side. The king's army is just too large, and led by Torgel Knutsson, too competent too. In a desperate attempt to escape, they try to flee to Norway, but the royal army comes and catches them by the border, and they have a bit of a three-way standoff. However, this never actually comes to a fight. Frustratingly, we don't know why. Probably because Erik and Valdemar realise that their army's simply not big enough to fight the large force of King Birger, and so they slip away into the night. 1304 turns to 1305, and Erik and Valdemar are still in dire straits, despite not having been fully defeated militarily. Good band, Dire Straits. <laughs> Definitely. Uh, even though their revolt was initially successful, the forces of the king, with the help of Mask Torgil and support from Denmark, has proven too much. It just shows you that the, the state apparatus in Sweden is developing and getting stronger, whereas previously, if this happened 100 years ago, just because you were the king didn't mean you were necessarily able to gather an army and call in on your alliances. But just now, it's like, oh, I'm the king. That means I have nearly 10,000 men that I can call on just because I'm the king. So the rebels needed to do a bit of a better groundwork at the start to be successful. Yeah, and also, ooh, I'm the king, and ooh... Uh, my brother-in-law down in Denmark can help me and send some even more men up. So it, it definitely shows that uh, the crown is stronger now than it was 100 years ago, like you said, Chris. In February 1305, Erik and Valdemar, they realize this, that their military position is too weak and they accept Mask Torgil's invitation to begin peace talks. 
On the 15th of February, both sides sign a peace treaty, which means that hostilities have ceased for now. The peace treaty, as you might expect, is very much dictated by King Dirger and Mastilga Knutsson. Erik and Valdemar are forced to accept that they have committed a crime against the crown and therefore must submit to serve the king and promise their faithfulness to him and his successors in the future. Furthermore, they must promise to remain neutral in affairs of the state and join in any wars or battles that King Birger instigates against foreign enemies. It's only in this last matter that the brothers seem to have been able to get a little clause of their own in, because Birger agrees that his brothers will never have to fight against King Hawkon of Norway, who had been their ally up until this point. So King Birger is basically saying they're not allowed to play any role in the kingdom. They're allowed to keep their titles and their little areas, but you know they're not really going to have any proper power. Mm-hmm. These negotiations took place in a small village called Karlsefta on the border between the counties of Dalsland and Bohuslän in the west of Sweden. Again, all this seems to be happening in the west. This is why the treaty is called the Treaty of Karlsefta. Soon afterwards, Birger also makes a separate peace with King Håkon in Norway, which is signed on Gullbear's head. And it seems for now the rebellion was over. Or is it? Historians have argued that the peace treaty was most likely forced upon the brothers and they were not being sincere when they signed it. Still, for now, hostilities have ceased and Erik and Valdemar are allowed to go back to being dukes of their respective dukedoms. King Bilio has come out of this fight victorious and has a strong army to try and make sure his brothers stick to their word. So 1305 seems to be starting off a bit better than the year before. Fighting between the brothers has stopped, and King Berger is also working on improving relations with the church. So in an attempt to smooth things over, Berger issues a new letter of privileges to the church on 28th of March 1305. This letter reaffirms a previous privilege that the church used to have, whereby all cathedral and main churches in local areas were exempt from tax, so they've been very happy with that coming back. Whilst Bilyo is busy trying to be king and keeping on top of things, his brothers are getting ready to throw that peace treaty that they just signed out the window and plan round two of this epic brother battle. Because Eirik in particular has not given up the plans on taking the crown from their older brother. If he wasn't happy before the rebellion, he would be even less content now, having been ordered to stay out of matters of state. It was only a matter of time before he would pick up a sword again. Only three weeks after the Treaty of Kolsefta was signed, Eric actually comes into possession of South Halland. Halland is today a county in Sweden, sitting like a slither on the southwest coast between Skåne and Gothenburg, but in the Middle Ages that same area was Danish, just like Skorna was. In 1305, a Danish duke, a man called Jakob, who controls South Halland, wakes up one day and realises he simply can't afford it anymore. It costs him a lot of money to run this area. So he puts it up to sale, which in itself is quite funny when we think of it in modern terms. For sale, part of national territory, owner appreciates a quick sale and accepts cash. <laughs> yeah. Imagine if the Swedish king had to sell Haaland today. Yeah. <laughs> 
it's a bit like uh, how the Roman Empress Didius Julianus effectively bought the crown back in the second century CE, which is another hilarious story. Um, I advise you to listen to his episode of Totalis Rangium. Uh, excellent, hilarious story. Back in 1305, uh, impoverished Danish Duke Jakob sells South Halland to none other than the Norwegian king, who right away gives it to his favourite son-in-law, the ambitious Duke Erik in Sweden. This goes to show you that even with two peace treaties, King Berlinger still hasn't broken up the alliance between his brothers and Norway. They might not be fighting against him directly, but they're still aiding each other. The brothers already had their heartland in western Sweden, and so by now coming into possession of South Halland, that means that Erik controls all three major fortresses in the west of the country, Kungahelen, Hundehals, and Varberg, which naturally strengthens his position. He's got a lot of military locations to back him up. Again, we sadly don't know exactly what happens next or how it happens, but it's clear that towards the end of the year 1305, Erik and Valdemar have once again taken up arms against their brother. This time, they get off to a great start. On the 6th of December, they imprison Mask Torgil. Well, that comes out of the blue <laughs> quite uh, unexpectedly. Indeed. Unfortunately, we don't know how that happened or where they keep him, but in prison he is. Uh, this means that Birjo has lost his main ally and lost the more experienced older statesman who had kept him on the throne and lost the military genius behind Sweden's recent military victories. All of a sudden, the two younger brothers' positions is looking a lot better. And can I just add in, because you might remember that Valdemar was married to Torgil's daughter, so he's effectively imprisoned his father-in-law. But he won't remain father-in-law for very long because almost immediately he gets divorced. <laughs> These medieval kings must have had such awkward family dinners. Well, they didn't have family dinners. <laughs> no, they had family fights and put each other in prison. But yeah, do you know, they divorced, didn't they, Valdemar yes. and uh, Torgi Knudsen's daughter? Mainly because of what happens next. Because Eric and Valdemar do not just rest on their laurels. In early 1306, so just a couple of months later, they decide to take things one step further and get rid of the influential mask once and for all. Because, as uh, we've seen many, many times throughout history, people can be rescued from prisons. So they need to remove that potential uh, flaw in their plan. Annoyingly, the circumstances aren't known and we don't know the run up to this, but what we do know is that Torgil Knutsson is decapitated in Stockholm around the 10th of February 1306, when buying some territory from your neighbour isn't necessarily a sign of rebellion, capturing and then executing your king's right-hand man and commander-in-chief definitely is. Yeah. When talking about the sources and the murky circumstances surrounding this, we even found one source that said King Berger actually agreed to this decapitation of Master Torgil because Torgil had betrayed him and allied himself with some outlawed Danish nobleman. Um, we're unsure. It doesn't really seem to fit Torgil Knutsson's uh, playbook up till now. He has seemed it, this would be an odd time to finally rebel. Yeah. 
naturally, King Delia is weakened by this because the mask by his side provided him with valuable expertise and also was his link to much of the Swedish nobility. A lot of people serving in the council would have respected Torgil Knutsson and his military prowess. In a way, you could sum it up by saying that Mask Torgil lost his head and King Birger lost his footing. Boom, boom. <laughs> but for now, King Birger manages to cling to the throne because after all, even though he's lost his main general, he still has a large army. But it only takes six months for his brothers to plan their next move. And that move comes on the 29th of September. The day is St. Michael's Day in the medieval Catholic calendar, and King Birger is celebrating it at his estate, Hortuna, in the county of Uppland. Knowing where the king is going to be, his brothers are ready, and in what is described as a well-organised coup, King Birger is captured. In a way, Birger walks into the trap himself. There's already a large party gathered at Hortuna, and when his brothers arrive, they're simply invited to join in the fun. Perhaps Sibiria was hoping for one of these family reconciliation dinners and everybody could just sit down and say, oh, well, remember when you killed my uh, commander-in-chief? Oh, fun times. But, you know, we can be friends. Unfortunately, that was not the case. The Eric Chronicle, which, as we've said, is very biased in favour of Eric, describes how the brothers and their allies secretly armed themselves and as night fell, they gave the order to their men to capture King Deja and Queen Ingeborg. Next, events unfold quickly. Sweden finds itself in what can only be described as utter political chaos. And it seems like every region and every town pretty much decided to start to fend for itself. Now the king was captured. Many parts of Sweden accept the dukes taking over of power right away. However, some parts resist. The areas in Finland under Swedish control in particular remain supportive of Birger as king and the towns of Kalmar and Boiholm also initially resist the dukes. Gotland, which as we've discussed in previous episodes, retain a certain independence at this point in time, quickly decide that they're not going to decide. They are simply going to sit on the fence for now and see what happens. Solid strategy, especially when you're on island. Yeah. I think probably Gotland was the only people who could afford to do that. Yeah. <laughs> but as many insurgents will tell you, and uh, many people planning coups, taking control of the capital is key to any successful coup. Stockholm falls almost immediately to the Dukes. It was top of their list. It's not clear whether it does so voluntarily or after a fight, but what we do know is that the palace in Stockholm initially refuses to surrender after the surrounding town does, and it's only after our favourite knight, Mats Schettelson, now appearing for the third time in the story, besieges the palace until it eventually gives up. Pretty soon, the news of the coup reaches the neighbouring countries, and down in Denmark, King Erik Meenveed immediately gets an army ready to go and save Birger and his sister, Queen Ingeborg. Erik and Valdemar seem to have anticipated this reaction from Denmark, and so they quickly turn to their friends in Norway to make sure they have their support in facing the Danes. This is quickly turning into one of the biggest potential wars we have ever seen on the Scandinavian peninsula. All three nations are arming for full-on war. But what's happening to Birger, you might wonder? 
Well, his brothers first planned to take him to Stockholm, but what with the siege of the palace and everything, they seemed to have decided that it was too risky for them actually to go into Stockholm itself and to take Birger with him. Instead, they head to Nyköpingshus, Eric's main headquarters, and it's here where the king and queen are imprisoned. Luckily for Birger, in the turmoil at Hjortuna, an aide to the king manages to get hold of the king's young son and heir, Magnus, who is only about six years old. Uh, he is quickly whisked off to Denmark, where he's taken care of by the Danish royal family. So at least the heir to the throne is safe for now. Speaking of the Danes, even though both them and the Norwegians were getting ready to intervene in events, it seemed like cooler heads prevailed in their courts, and they seemed to hold off for a bit. Perhaps they realised that this huge potential war would have caused much more trouble than it was worth. After all, the Dukes in Sweden now seemed to hold almost all the cards, let alone all the fortresses. And that's where we're going to leave the developments this time as the peninsula seems creeping ever closer to all-out war. Yeah, it's really dramatic and I think that is why this period is relatively well known. The events of September 1306 in particular are well known in Swedish history. Uh, it's called the Hotuna Leken the Hjortuna Games in English, and I'd say it's one of the most well-known events of Swedish medieval history. Yeah, Birja Jarl and this mm. are probably up there. The Hortuna Games sounds a bit like the Hunger Games, uh, <laughs> although this was named the Hortuna Games long before the Hunger Games was a thing. <laughs> yeah, uh, actually, I certainly remember it as one of those key things that you learned in school a bit like how everyone in Britain learns of the Battle of Hastings in 1066 or something like that. The name Hjortuna Leken actually comes from a passage in the Eric Chronicle. Which uh, also is now going to read out now in the original Swedish, or really old school Swedish. Ther kom konungin gangande nider, stirrande ögon hardla vreder, mindes ider något av Hjortuna Lek. Very nice. Medieval Swedish is quite different from modern Swedish, so forgive my stumbling reading it. I'm not actually too sure of how some of these words should be pronounced, so I'm guessing a bit when uh, I'm reading it out. In modern Swedish, that same phrase goes like this. Kungen kom ner dit med stirrande blick och mycket vred. Minns ni något av Hårtuna leken? Jag minns den mycket väl. Denna är inte bättre än den. And so in English it would be The king came down with eyes staring and very angry. Do you remember the Hårtuna game? I remember it well. This is no better than it. That uh, sounds pretty scary and foreboding of what's to come uh, when you hear the translation. And we should also say that the translation, so to say, from medieval Swedish to modern day Swedish was done by historian Zef Alvared. So thank you for to Zef for that excellent translation. Yeah. Which you found in a book somewhere. I did, I did. There are a lot of historians who are very skilled in reading the original documents and translating them into modern Swedish. 
Great. Um, but before we get into translating too much of uh, medieval Swedish, we should probably end now and uh, see you next time to continue the story while we'll follow up on what happens next in Scandinavia and in Sweden in particular. Yeah, Bjorn is in prison, his brothers have taken over, and Denmark and Norway are both uh, rattling arms to join various sides of uh, of this Swedish Royal Rebellion. Royal Rumble. <laughs> Royal Rumble in the Swedish not jungle. Uh, on a more personal note and an update on potential scheduling things, uh, also has just started a new job, which is very exciting. It is. It is very exciting. I'm very happy. But this also means that uh, you now have to commute and you're not working from home as much and your headspace is very much in your new job. You've only had a week and a bit in your new job. We hope that the next episode will come out on time. We're very quite sure that it will, but we're actually having quite a few visitors coming from the UK uh, in the next couple of weekends. So our research and writing and recording time is going to be... uh, We're not going to have as much time in the next couple of weeks, but we do have this backlog of episodes. We haven't actually recorded the next one, but we're going to do that soon. It might be slightly shorter um, than this one, but that should be only the next episode. It has a little bit of a question mark on it. After that, we'll be back in the full swing of things. But next time, yeah, it might just be the next big event in this story between these three brothers. So thank you for bearing with us. And until next time, don't forget to follow us on social media and check out our new website which isn't that new anymore, but uh, check it out, aflatpackhistoryofsweden.com. Yes, and whilst the website isn't new, there's new family trees, there might be a new map, and uh, there's also the Swedish phrases that are now collated on the website too. Indeed. So until next time, take care and try not to imprison your siblings. No promises on that one. (laughs) Bye-bye. Bye. Där kom kungen gågande nida, styrande ögon hadlarida. Minnes igde nakat av hörtorna lik, får lura minnes han mik, sen är ej bättre än hin.